This morning's scripture reading uh, will come from Revelation uh, 3, 14 through 22. That's Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And this is uh, to the church in Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so that because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For I say, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me refined, to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. To those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as also I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The wrong scripture to begin with, and they had to make a last minute adjustment and could not include uh, the Korean translation with it in time. With that, I do need to make one announcement this morning. Uh, I've been asked to announce that the uh, ladies' retreat, today is the first day to register for that, so be sure to do that. And if you're willing to volunteer to be a part of one of the committees working with the retreat, there is a meeting in the uh, training room back there immediately after service, so please make plans, ladies, to stick around for that. Uh, also, you may have gotten an email this weekend or noticed in our bulletin that we are uh, taking questions for what we're calling our Q&A panel. On, on fifth Sundays this year, we're going to have a special evening service. After a brief devotional, the elders and ministers will be putting together a Q&A session where we're going to answer questions submitted by you. And what we want you to do right now is, is uh, send us your questions. You can put them in a wooden box at the welcome desk or submit them online. Those instructions have been provided in your bulletin. But any questions you have of a biblical, doctrinal, theological, spiritual, or moral capacity, please send those to us. We would love to take time this year to study God's Word together by addressing the questions that uh, you feel need to be addressed. So please consider submitting your questions in that vein. Now, with that being said, you may have heard about a science fair that was won by a young man out in Idaho who did a project on the dangers of dihydrogen monoxide. Now, here's what he did. He interviewed 50 different people and asked them if they would support a ban, if not a total eradication of this chemical in the United States because it is legal in the U.S., and here's the problem. Dihydrogen monoxide does have its issues. For instance, dihydrogen monoxide, it's colorless, it's odorless, it's tasteless, and it kills thousands of people every year, typically by accidental in inhalation. But it also 
but it also can cause severe tissue damage if there's prolonged exposure to it in its solid form. There can be severe burns caused if you come in contact with its gaseous state. It's a major component of acid rain. It contributes to the greenhouse effect. It contributes to the erosion of our natural landscape, and it has been found in excised tumors of terminally ill or terminal cancer patients. And so we asked 50 different people if they supported a ban on this chemical, and 43 of those 50 said yes, six were undecided, and only one knew that the chemical he was talking about is better known by its chemical formula, H2O. See, the subject of his project was how gullible are we? And that little study and its results reveal something about humans, that we have the capability of being blind to the truth when it's right there in front of us. Dihydrogen monoxide, H2O, or better known as water. We are capable of being blind to the truth even when it's right in front of us. Hopefully you're aware that our theme this year is 2020 vision. And what we want to accomplish this year with, with this being our theme is we want to focus on those things that really matter. But before we can start talking about what really matters, about those things we need to train our focus on, we first need to acknowledge that our focus gets impaired sometimes. That from a spiritual spec perspective, we don't always focus on what we're supposed to, and there's reasons for that. And one of those reasons can be that we're wearing a blindfold. Now think about it with me for a moment. A, a blindfold is simply something that impairs one's sight, impairs one, one's vision by covering that which they see from. In a physical sense, we can take a piece of cloth and put it over our eyes, and it will blind us physically so that we cannot see. But think spiritually. Could we succumb to something that prevents us from seeing things spiritually? Can we blind ourselves in some fashion so that our faith is inhibited? Maybe a spiritual blindfold can take the form of an ideology or an experience or a, a trait or, or a, a, an attitude or a mindset. But we are capable of hindering our spiritual vision by something. And today, that's what I want us to talk about. We're going to start this series called Blindfolds, and I want to begin by showing you that spiritual blindfolds are real, and I want to take you to Revelation chapter 3 to do that. So if you, if you follow along in the Scripture reading, or if you're not there yet, turn to Revelation chapter 3, and let's take a moment and look at this letter that Jesus has written to the church in Laodicea. Now, the first thing I want you to realize as we look at this letter, as we talk about the church in Laodicea, the first thing I want you to understand when it comes to blindfold, because there's two things we really need to understand about blindfolds. One, you can be completely unaware that you're wearing a blindfold. You can be completely unaware of your blindfold. You can be hiding your head in the sand, completely unaware. That seems to be what's happening here in Laodicea. As we read this letter earlier, one thing you'll notice 
is that the church in Laodicea is never commended, never praised for anything. Now that's unique, that's interesting, because Laodicea's letter is the seventh letter that Jesus has written, or that Jesus has given John to relay to churches in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, you have seven letters to seven different congregations. Laodicea is the last. In the previous six letters that have been recorded in those two chapters, every congregation received something that they were commended for. For instance, you can look in in chapter 2 at verse 2, and you'll see that Ephesus is commended for defending the truth. You can look in chapters 2 and 3 and read about the churches in Smyrna and Pergamum and in Philadelphia, and they're all commended for their faithfulness in some capacity. The church in Thyatira in, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 19 is commended for their spiritual progress. And the church in Sardis in chapter 3 and verse 4 appears to not be commended for anything at first, but by the end of that verse you find out that they're commended for the purity of a select few. See, all six of those congregations, even Sardis, who gets the littlest commendation, all of them are commended for something, but nowhere in this letter to the church in Laodicea are they commended for anything. Nothing is praiseworthy in Laodicea. Nothing is worth mentioning that's good about the church in Laodicea. There's not one thing for which the church in Laodicea receives commendation. But they are criticized for something. In fact, they receive the harshest criticism of all seven of these, of all seven of these churches. And I want you to notice what they're criticized for. You may think you already know. Oh, they're criticized for being lukewarm, right? That's what they're criticized for. But I want you to take a closer look at this text. Because they are criticized for being lukewarm, but I think that's a symptom. I don't think that's the biggest problem. I think their temperature, their faith temperature is only a symptom of a much bigger problem in Laodicea. Look at verse 17 with me. Look at what Jesus said to this church in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17. He said they do not realize that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now did you catch what he just said about this congregation? Jesus said the church in Laodicea is blind, but they don't even realize it. The church in Laodicea's biggest problem is not that they're lukewarm. The church in Laodicea's biggest problem is that they can't see their problem. See, I imagine that when when the, the Revelation letter came to Laodicea, when they received this text from John and they opened it up and they're reading it aloud together as a congregation. They're reading along and and they read about the message to the church in Ephesus and they read about the message to the church in Smyrna, to the church in in Pergamum and Thyatira and and Sardis and Philadelphia and they're reading all these letters and then they get to theirs and they're getting criticized so harshly. I imagine they're sitting there thinking, problem? What problem is he talking about? It's not like we're allowing false teaching in our congregation. He had to get onto some churches for that. Problem? What what problem do we have in Laodicea? It's not like we're okay with immorality. Some churches had to get criticized for that. He didn't have to say anything about false teaching or immorality in our congregation. What problem is he talking about? And that's the problem. They can't see that they have a problem. They have a blindfold on. And that's what Jesus is calling out. 
If you skip ahead to verse 18, you'll see that Jesus, among other instructions, instructed them to obtain some medicine for their eyes. He said, I counsel you to buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They can't see that they have a problem. Jesus is telling this church, this this group of Christians, that their primary problem is their inability to see that they have a problem. They're blind to their ineffectiveness. They're blind to their lukewarmness. They're blind to their lack of zeal. And if you don't realize that you have a problem, then you can never fix your problem. See, that's why we're going to talk about blindfolds. Because until you recognize that you're wearing a blindfold, there's going to be something in your life that needs repair, and you're not going to recognize it. There is something that needs to be fixed in Laodicea, and they have no idea what it is. They didn't even realize there was something that needed to be fixed because they're blinded to that reality. You can be completely unaware of your blindfold. And you may be today, unaware that you're wearing a blindfold, spiritually speaking. There's something else you need to realize about blindfolds and why they are dangerous. And that is this. You cannot grow while wearing a blindfold. See, we've already noted that the church in Laodicea is criticized for being lukewarm. We're not overlooking that fact. We're just saying that maybe the biggest problem there is that they don't see their problem. In addition to that, their problem is that they've started becoming lukewarm. Now, I want you to think about that. Look at verse 15 and 16. Jesus says, you are neither cold nor hot. And then he goes on to say, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Their lukewarmness made Jesus sick to his stomach. Now, I want you to think about that description of them being lukewarm. Whenever we refer to something as lukewarm, we're not complimenting it. You know what I mean? Whether you're talking about hot coffee or a cold soft drink, when you refer to it as lukewarm, you're not indicating that it's desirable, typically. In most cases, the use of the language of lukewarm is an indication that the the temperature of that object is not what it ought to be. I don't ever hear anybody pick up a cup of coffee and go, oh, that's good lukewarm coffee. Or or grab a can of Coke, or preferably, my preference, a glass bottle Coke out of the refrigerator, open it up, take a drink, go, oh, that's good lukewarm Coke. No, we we want it cold or we want it hot. And some people want some things that should be hot, cold, like iced coffee. Makes no sense. But that's a different point. Here's the thing. We don't think of lukewarm as a good thing. And I don't think Jesus does either. He's not complimenting their faith here. He's not complimenting their temperature here. He's criticizing it. Maybe Jesus is trying to communicate the fact that Laodicea at one point in time was on fire for him. But since that time, they've cooled. And their faith isn't as strong as it used to be. Or maybe, maybe Jesus is trying to communicate that, that this seed was planted in Laodicea and the church grew there and it went from this coldness to the point where it was growing its faith and it was increasing its temperature. It was warming up, but somewhere along the way it stopped. It plateaued. It grew stale. And, and, and their faith quit 
heating up. And it plateaued. Either way, it doesn't matter what he's trying to communicate along the lines of being lukewarm. The one thing we can be certain of is that he's saying that's not desirable. That's not the way it should be. He's trying to communicate to this church that they stopped growing in some fashion, that they're not moving in the direction that they are ought to be moving as his people. Here's the thing we have to realize. Faith is a journey, not a destination. We don't ever reach a point where we're like, I've got faith, I'm good, I'm done. Following Christ doesn't mean, hey, once I started, I'm good to go for the rest of my life. Following Christ is a continuous effort. Faith is described in terms of growth throughout Scripture. Listen to some of these descriptions. Faith is described as something to be pursued in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Something to be built up in the book of Jude. Something that has grown in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 15, as well as 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Faith is even described as something that's to be to progress in Philippians chapter 1. But faith is also described as something that can be shipwrecked, something that can be abandoned or denied and even wandered from. And all of those descriptions appear in 1 Timothy. And see, when you, when you consider these, uh, the, these descriptions of faith, it appears that Scripture is speaking about something that's not stagnant or finalized, but something that is supposed to be growing, something that's supposed to be moving forward, something that's supposed to be increasing. That makes faith more like a journey than it is a destination. And nowhere is this more clear than in 2 Peter chapter 1. I want you to notice something here in 2 Peter. Hold your spot in Revelation chapter 3. We'll be going back. But go over to 2 Peter chapter 1 with me. There's a section between verses 5 and 9 of 2 Peter chapter 1 that may be familiar to you. Sometimes this section is known as the Christian graces. And later this year, we're going to be studying these graces. We're going to be studying these attributes, these traits, because 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 calls on us to make every effort to supplement our faith, to add to our faith the attributes of goodness, of knowledge, of self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and love. Those attributes, we're told to add those to our faith, to supplement our faith with those things. That's language of increasing, of moving, of growing. But now I really want you to notice verse 8. I want you to notice what Peter said after identifying the traits we're supposed to add to our faith. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is saying that faith is intended to have an upward movement about it. It's the goal of the follower of God to continuously increase his or her faith. No matter what stage of life you're at, no matter where you're, you're, you're at or what you're doing, you're supposed to be growing your faith. And notice what he says, if, if you're not growing your faith, then you are either ineffective or unfruitful. Those are not categories you want to be in. Peter's saying that faith is supposed to grow. But I also want you to notice what he says in verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
Peter, in a way, is saying that when faith stagnates, that's evidence of a vision problem. In other words, faith that isn't growing is indicative of someone who stopped focusing on what really matters because you can't grow when you're wearing a blindfold. So if your faith isn't increasing, if you're not pursuing an upward movement with your faith, with your relationship with God, then it might be because you've got a blindfold on. Because if you're not focusing on what really matters, then you can't grow. And what did he say really matters here? What did he say must be focused on that, that really matters here? Did you catch that last part in verse 9? You can't, uh, it says that those who have become blind have forgotten that he, he was cleansed from his former sin. He's saying you've forgotten what Christ did for you. He's saying you've forgotten that you have a Savior who paid the price for your sins. You've forgotten how your salvation was obtained. Because when you take your eyes off Christ, when you minimize what he did for you, you're going to become blind spiritually. You can't grow your faith with a blindfold on. See, here's the point today that I really want to get across to you about blindfolds. You could be wearing a blindfold right now and you may not even realize it. But more importantly, you may be wearing a blindfold right now and that might be why you can't grow spiritually, why you aren't maturing spiritually, why you're not, your faith isn't increasing. And our objective over the next several weeks is to identify some blindfolds, some things that prevent us from maturing spiritually. Because we need to shed those. Because we never want to be categorized as ineffective or unfruitful as Peter said here in 2 Peter chapter 1. But here's the thing. If you, can't, if you may not even know you have a blindfold on and, and, and wearing a blindfold is going to keep you from growing, then isn't this like a lose-lose type sermon? Well, here's the thing. If you'll go back to Revelation chapter 3 with me, I want us to consider the instructions that Jesus is going to give this church to get rid of their blindfolds. Because Jesus makes it clear that we can remove blindfolds. We can even uncover our blindfolds. But how? How do we remove spiritual blindfolds? Well, notice in verse 18 of Revelation chapter 3 that in order to remove blindfolds, you must consult God. Jesus said this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now here's what's interesting. Back in verse 17, Jesus had told the church in Laodicea that they were poor. And now here in verse 18, he advised them to buy gold refined by fire. Back in verse 17, he told the church in Laodicea that they were naked. And now in verse 18, he advised them to buy white garments so that they may be clothed. Back in verse 17, he had told the church in Laodicea that they were blind. And now in verse 18, he's telling them, advising them to buy salve to anoint their eyes so they can see. But the important thing to notice is where he says they should obtain this gold, these garments, this salve. He says, buy from me. The underlying message is that he alone can resolve our spiritual ailments. See, we cannot always see our blindfolds, but the one, the one who Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says is all-seeing to the degree that he can discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart, he, he alone can see our blindfolds. More importantly, he can remove our blindfolds. 
He did it for Saul, who would later become Paul. Remember how he blinded him on the road to Damascus? And he used that opportunity to remove Paul's or Saul's blindfold. A blindfold that kept him from seeing that Jesus was his son. A blindfold that kept him from understanding the full range of the gospel. He removed Peter's blindfold as well. Through a dream, through visions, and he, and he showed Peter this dream of clean and unclean animals coming down from heaven. And it was removing the blindfold of ethnicity that Peter held on to, that God only welcomed those who were Jews. And it opened P Peter's eyes to the reality that Gentiles were accepted as well. We have a God who removes blindfolds. I don't know how he's always going to remove a blindfold, but I know that he does it. And so in order for us to remove our blindfolds, the first thing we need to do is be consulting with the one who sees all. The one who offers to provide gold refined by fire. The one who says that if you buy from me, you can get the garments you need. The one who says if you buy from me, you can get the salve to open your eyes. We need to be consulting with the one who sees all and asking him to uncover our blindfolds. It may be a more bold prayer than you realize. To go to God and say, God, I might not see what I'm supposed to see. I might have something that's preventing me from seeing things that are real spiritually. Will you help me take them off? Will you show me what they are? I realized something today that I'm speaking in very vague terms right now. And so for some of you, you might be sitting out there going, what kind of blindfold is he talking about? Just wait, we'll get to that. But in the meantime, I'm asking you to talk with God about the fact that you might be blind to something you have never otherwise noticed. Consult with the one who can remove blindfolds. The other thing Jesus has to say to the church in Laodicea is that in order to remove blindfolds, you must passionately pursue change. Look at verse 19. Because Jesus instructed the church in Laodicea to, uh, to be zealous and repent. Now, we talk a lot about repentance. In fact, I know I talked about repentance two sermons ago. So repentance comes up a lot. And hopefully by now, in, in the time that I've talked about repentance over the years, as well as the sermons you've heard from others, you understand that repentance is like a U-turn. That repentance legitimately is a turning away from one direction and a turning to the other direction. I repent a lot on this stage, if you've never noticed. I'm going this way, in about two seconds I'll be going that way, and I won't think about it. We understand repentance to be a turning around, a change of direction. That's what repentance is. But that's really not what I'm focused on with this section. I want you to notice what Jesus said about repentance. He said, be zealous and repent. The interesting thing about this particular instruction is the call to be zealous and repent. The Greek word translated be zealous means to desire earnestly or to pursue earnestly. It envisions a desire that is so great, it's boiling over so as not to be containable. 
we might use the word passionate instead of zealous. And here's the thing about passion or zeal. When you are passionate about something, you possess intimate knowledge of it. When you are passionate about something, you can't stop talking about it. When you are passionate about something, you invest your resources in it. When you are passionate about something, you make sacrifices for it. When you're passionate about something, it consumes you. I think what Jesus is trying to say here is that the change that needs to happen in your life in order to remove blindfolds, it needs to consume you. You need to be consumed with the pursuit of change. You need to be passionate. You need to be zealous about changing things in your life. When you come to find out what your blindfold is, it can't be some simple, okay, I'll, I'll do something about that. It's got to be passionately pursued and changed. Back in 2 Peter chapter 1, when we were reading about the things we add to our faith, about not being uh, unfruitful and not being ineffective, that whole passage started with Peter saying, make every effort to add to your faith. Whenever I come across the phrase in Scripture, make every effort, I have to emphasize it. Because you know what it means to make every effort? Think about that language. To make every effort to achieve something is to say that, that nothing else in life matters as much as that which you intend to achieve. So you're not going to spare any expense. You're not going to permit any other focus. You're not going to prioritize anything else when you're making every effort. It is your sole intent. It is your sole objective. It is your primary focus. And what Jesus is telling the church in Laodicea is that in order to remedy their blind spots, to take off those blindfolds, they have to turn. They have to alter their course. They have to make a change. But they have to do so with such zeal, such passion, that they're willing to do whatever it takes. And that's because blindfolds are comfortable. So if you don't make every effort to change, you know what you're going to do? You're going to slip the blindfold back on. Because old habits die hard, don't they? So when you come to the realization that you have a blindfold, you've got to pursue its removal at all costs. Because otherwise, you're going to keep it on. And that's going to affect your growth. So make every effort. And one final thing. In order to remove blindfolds, you must allow Christ to reign. Look at verse 20 here of Revelation chapter 3. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I find this statement of Jesus to be so revealing. Because if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, where this whole book starts, there's this vision John receives of Jesus. And you have Jesus standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And what you find out is that those lampstands represent the seven churches to whom he writes letters here. One of those being Laodicea. And there's Jesus standing among the lampstands. So in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is with his churches. But when Jesus addresses the church in Laodicea in chapter 3, he's outside his church, knocking. 
His rightful place is among his churches because he's the head of the church, as the book of Ephesians and Colossians makes very clear. But this church had kicked him out, not because they were embracing, embracing false teaching, not because they were practicing immorality, but because they had lost their focus. And the point is that in order to remove your blindfolds, you have to let Jesus be the head again. You have to let him take control of your life. You have to surrender to his reign. Jesus won't take control by force. He will only take control when and where he's invited to take control. So in order for us to remove our blindfolds, the ultimate thing we have to do is to allow Christ to reign in our lives. And that means that every thought, every action, every moment, every decision, every word, every motive has to be brought under his lordship. I think we underestimate the importance of that. Jesus said, deny yourself. That means give up your throne and give it to him. And when it comes to taking off blindfolds, that's the final step. Because if he's sitting on the throne, if he's the head, not just of the church, but of your life, you won't put any blindfolds back on. You won't be like Laodicea and be unable to see the problems because you're letting him reign. This morning I may be speaking in vague terms, but I'm speaking in reality. There are things we don't realize about ourselves, about our failure to fulfill God's will, our failure to be his people. And we don't see them sometimes because we have a blindfold on. If we want to focus on what really matters this year, it has to start here. It has to start by clearing up our vision so that we can see what he intends for us to see as his people. And I want to close out with one final observation from Revelation chapter 3. In verse 20, when Jesus is outside of the church in Laodicea, and he's there standing at the door, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. What's so fascinating is the language there, the tense of those verbs, is not referring to a single knock. It's referring to an ongoing, consistent, continuous knock. Because Jesus hadn't given up on his church yet. He's banging on the door. He's not giving up because he wants to rescue even those who abandoned him. And guess what? He's not giving up on you or I either. Because it's so fascinating as he closes out what he says to the church in Laodicea. He shifts from language that's focused on the congregation to language focused on the individual. It's in verse 20. He says, if, if anyone, not if the congregation, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. If anyone, it's individual. It's up to you to let him in. Jesus isn't giving up on you. And he isn't giving up on me, even when our blindfolds are keeping us from seeing him as we should. And so this morning, we extend his invitation for you to open the door to let him back in. Maybe you've never opened the door for Jesus to your life before. Maybe you've never made the decision to become his child, to become a part of his church. 
Well, now's the opportunity. If you'll confess your faith, your belief that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, if you'll repent of your sins, as we've talked about what repentance means moments ago, and if you'll be immersed in water, baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, that's the entry point. That's when you become his child, and that's when your sins are removed. But maybe you've made that decision, but you haven't seen everything clearly, or you've kicked him out of the headship of your life, and it's time to let Jesus back in, or it's time to consult with God to correct your vision. We assemble not only so that those who desire to receive salvation can receive it, but also for us as brothers and sisters in Christ, members of the same body of Christ, to encourage, to build up, to help one another. Maybe you need to return to the family, or maybe you need the prayers of this family, but whatever your need is, Jesus is at the door knocking right now. Won't you let him in while together we stand and sing? Oh, what a